Welcome to TSX Quarterly, the podcast that brings you publicly available earnings calls from companies listed on the Toronto Stock Exchange in one convenient location. Gone are the days of looking through confusing websites. You'll find the important information right here. Enjoy the call. and welcome to the Q3 2020 Financial Results Conference Call for HLS Therapeutics. On this morning's call, we have Gilbert Godin, Chief Executive Officer, and Tim Hendrickson, Chief Financial Officer. At this time, all participants are in a listen-only mode. Following management's presentation, we will conduct a question and answer session, during which analysts are invited to ask questions. To ask a question, please press star 1 on your touchtone phone to register. Should you require any assistance during the call, please press star zero. Earlier this morning, HLS issued a news release announcing its financial results for the three- and nine-month periods ended September 30, 2020. The news release, along with the company's MD&A and financial statements, will be available on HLS's website and on CDAR. Please note that, that a slide accompanying today's call can be viewed via the webcast, a link of which is available in the company's Q3 results press release, and at its website on the events page. Certain matters discussed in today's conference call or answers that may be given to questions could constitute forward-looking statements. Actual results could differ materially from those anticipated. Risk factors that could affect results are detailed in the company's annual information form, which has been filed on CDAR and can be accessed at www.cedar.com. During this conference call, HLS will refer to adjusted EBITDA. Adjusted EBITDA does not have any standardized meaning prescribed by IFRS. Adjusted EBITDA is defined in the company's press release and annual filings that are available on CDAR and on the company's website. Please note that all financial information provided is in U.S. dollars unless otherwise specified. I will now let you turn the meeting over to Mr. Godin. Please go ahead, sir. Thank you, operator. Good morning, everyone, and uh, thank you for joining us. On our call today, I will start off with a look at recent operational developments and activity within our product portfolio. Tim will follow with a more detailed look at our financial results, and then we will hold a Q&A session. The third quarter results reflect the strength and the stability of Clausrill, our foundational product, which continues to perform well despite the COVID-19 pandemic. Clausrill's patient counts and sales level in Canada are up in 2020, reflecting the essential nature of this medication and the significant difference it can make in the lives of those suffering from treatment-resistant schizophrenia, or TRS, a chronic and serious condition. With a quick look at the headline numbers, Q3 revenues was $13.1 million, adjusted EBITDA, was $4.5 million in spite of one-time charges, and cash from operations was $2.4 million. On a year-over-year basis, these numbers reflect that 2020 has been a year of significant investment in VSEPA, which we expect will generate substantial rewards for the business for years to come. Operationally in Q3, we continue to press forward and make good progress on our VSEPA launch, despite the challenges prevailing in the healthcare system. 
Quarter to quarter, the number of patients being prescribed Vesipa increased 124% in the third quarter to 1,200, and the number of prescribing physicians jumped almost 90% to over 350. These growth numbers are also showing that we are gaining depth with prescribers as the average number of patients per practitioner is increasing. While COVID-19 does present challenges in reaching physicians, we are finding ways to make meaningful contact and are succeeding in raising awareness for the product with key opinion leaders and other prescribers. All things considered, we're very encouraged from what we see both in, the ter in terms of the engagement and response from practitioners and in terms of the trends for prescribers and patient uptake. Our dedicated VSIPA team of 30 plus people continues to pursue a largely digital print and telephone outreach plan enhanced since June with face-to-face -face interactions which continue to increase throughout the third quarter. Almost 70% of those interactions are now live, which includes face-to-face, -face, phone, or televisual. We have made sustained progress with the core target of cardiologists, endocrinologists, and selected general practitioners. Given the fluidity of health, the healthcare environment, we continue to explore all options available to broaden our reach and accelerate prescriber awareness, including the potential benefits of a co-detailing arrangement to extend our reach to a broader base of general practitioners. The important thing to remember is that as our cumulative efforts reach and then exceed minimum frequencies of interactions with the key prescribers, we have growing evidence that the product's benefit results in usage that is consistent with a life-saving cardiovascular breakthrough product. Cardiovascular disease remains the number one killer worldwide. Statins alone are not enough. Vesipa is the first and only Health Canada-approved drug that has been proven to significantly reduce the risk of death or major cardiac event in its indication. As the only drug in its class, it has the potential to improve the lives of hundreds of thousands of Canadians. At this point, I would like to turn your attention to the slide that is viewable on the webcast. If you missed the opening preamble, the, West the webcast link can be found in our press release issued this morning and on our website in the events section. We get asked frequently, how is the VCPA launch going? So we decided to provide a few elements to help people appreciate what has been accomplished so far. So looking now at the slide titled the SIPA recent analogs, two-year comparison. This slide shows VSIPA script performance to date and compares it to the post-launch script performance of two other cardiovascular drugs, Eliquis and Pradexa, which were launched in Canada in 2012 and 2010, respectively. Bear with me as no analogs are perfect, but these two drugs are oral anticoagulants 
and the oral anticoagulant market is a relevant analog for Vesipa. And we include their historical experience here for illustrative purposes only. They have a similar aim in terms of cardiovascular risk focus, a similar market size potential, and an overlap of healthcare practitioners. The purpose of this slide is twofold. First, as we look at the first three quarter, it illustrates that product launches, even large product, are slow in the initial phases as companies engage with the few, but the very influential specialists and key opinion leaders. We are pleased to report that Vesipa has posted impressive numbers during that time, especially when you consider that having launched mid-February, Q1 was effectively a six-week quarter. And secondly, since, since then, we were under the effect of the pandemic. Secondly, we have posted on the far right side of the slide where those two analogs have ended at peak after their launches, sometimes four, five, or six years later, in terms of patient counts. We have done so to put those numbers into perspective with our anticipated peak year potential of 130 to 150,000 patients, which is the base for our 275 to 325 million Canadian dollars in peak year sales target. The y-axis shows the number of prescriptions written in that quarter. The table at the bottom of the slide shows actual script data for HLS for each of the three quarters this year, and then a range of script levels for Q4 this year and for each quarter next year. It's what we call internally the hurricane cone. For Eliquis and Prodexa, the table shows actual script data for each of the first eight quarters post their launch. So what does this slide tell us? Well, seven things. First of all, as I said before, it suggests that we are off to a very good start with Vesipa. It also suggests that in the case, uh, that, uh, that as is the case with Prodexa, a relatively slow start can still result in a very robust patient penetration number at peak here. That the curve that is relatively flat in the beginning can really ramp up after several years. Like the case for hurricane tracking science, the course that COVID-19 takes in the coming months and quarters could impact these numbers, as well as other factors, such as gaining additional payer coverage. But as is our fashion, we will work to mitigate, to neutralize, or to capitalize on those external factors. Most importantly, it doesn't change the fact that the need for Vesipa is immense the solution is unique, and therefore, the Vesipa potential remains unchanged. In August, on our second quarter call, we increased and narrowed our peak year sales estimate to 275 to 325 million from the previous 200 to 300 million. Despite everything that is going on, we're confident in our ability to achieve this target as we progress through our launch. Let's also not forget that we achieved several important milestones in the quarter on top of other, others achieved earlier this year. Collectively, 
These de-risking factors include eight years of data exclusivity, which was granted to us in January of this year, a portfolio of up to 15 patents, which could extend market protection well into the 2030s, CADET's recommendation issued in the third quarter to reimburse Recipa for patients with established cardiovascular disease, PMPRB's positive notification on introductory pricing for Recipa, also issued in Q3, continued scientific progress with the publication of the Evaporate trial that showed that Vesipa caused plaque regression in the arteries of those patients taking Vesipa on top of a statin versus those patients that were only taking a statin. And as of today, almost 50% of all privately covered lives now have coverage for Vesipa which includes just under 50% in Ontario and just over 60% in Quebec, Canada's two largest provincial markets. These developments, and in particular those with CADET and PMPRB, signal the passing of a critical stage of our journey, one that is conducive to opening up the market to allow us to fully execute on our launch strategy. With the prospect of updated cardiovascular guidelines in the near future, we are hopeful that VSIPA will gain the same degree of medical and scientific recognition in Canada that has been granted by leading medical societies in the United States and in Europe. I would like to switch gears now and speak to Clausural and CSAM Pronto. As with the second quarter, the third quarter provided further evidence that Clauseril is a steady and reliable foundational product as sales and patients' numbers were up in Canada. We actually achieved patient growth for now three consecutive months in the third quarters following the lockdown in the second quarter. New treatment initiation should continue to pick up as mental health centers continue to resume their activity progressively. Clauseril is the last line of defense and the only proven drug therapy for patients with TRS. Dropping treatment will inevitably result in a relapse, and as such, our Clauseril Support and Assistance Network continues to work at ensuring patients comply with mandatory safety testing and stay on treatment. We remain at the early rollout stage for CSAN Pronto, our point-of-care safety blood monitoring device, but as with VSIPA, the response from practitioners is enthusiastic and points to a promising future for the product. We deployed in 12 locations across eight institutions in the third quarter, and we are pleased to be making headway on the rollout, though, as you'd expect, it is moving at a more modest pace due to COVID-19. We added to our foundational base of products in the third quarter with the acquisition of a long-duration portfolio uh, uh, consisting of four diverse royalty products that are or will be marketed globally by healthcare leaders, Takeda, Boston Scientific, Pfizer, and Sanofi Genzyme. The portfolio is expected to generate adjusted EBITDA of approximately $11 million per year on average for the next 10 years and an annual IRR in excess of 20% during that period. 
This transaction is consistent with our strategy to generate stable and durable cash, revenue and cash flow from foundational assets to support our growth and acquisitive growth opportunities. It also helps to replace the revenue and adjusted EBITDA for our current royalty product, Absorica, as our agreement is expected to wind up at the end of 2020. We also have three products in the pipeline, Perseris Trinomia and MyCare Insight. Saladax has filed MyCare Insight with Health Canada, and it is now under review. As a diagnostic, its review period is shorter, so if approved, we believe we could have the opportunity to launch in the first half of 2021. The other two products remain in the review period. These three products would provide complementarity and additional scale to our two therapeutic areas, cardiovascular and CNS, and bring novel treatment options to practitioners in those fields. As always, the strength of our balance sheet and our access to capital through our credit facility will continue to enable our business development activities to drive further growth. Finally, today we announced the implementation of a normal course issuer bid for purposes of acquiring our shares on the open market. From time to time, the value of our share in the public market may provide the opportunity to acquire stock at, a pri at prices that we believe do not reflect the true underlying value of the business. We've put in place the NCIB to enable us to take advantage of these opportunities. With that, I will turn it over to Tim for a closer look at our third quarter financials. Tim? Thank you, Gilbert, and good morning, everyone. Starting with revenue and product sales, our product sales in Canada were up 7.8% in Q3, driven by the introduction of Vesipa earlier this year and continued growth in Clausero. At this early stage of the launch, Vesipa sales are not yet material. However, as Gilbert said earlier, we are encouraged by the favorable physician engagement and script trends, along with consistent and growing replenishment orders that we are seeing. Clausero net sales in Canada for Q3 of this year were up 2.3% in Canadian dollars from the same period in the prior year, and up 5.8% in Canadian dollars for the year-to-date period versus the same period last year. Actual growth rates as reported in U.S. dollars were lower due to the weakening of the Canadian dollar versus the U.S. dollar during the quarter and year-to-date periods. We are pleased with this performance when considering that in the year-to-date period, six of those nine months have been during the pandemic. Clausural product sales in the U.S. market declined $0.3 million, or 6.3% in Q3 of this year compared to Q3 last year, and we're down a similar percentage year-to-date. However, Clausero volumes and gross sales are relatively flat on a year-over-year -year basis for both the third quarter and the year-to-date period, up 1.1% and down 0.8% respectively. The decline in reported product sales compared to the prior year periods reflects more favorable gross-to-net adjustments in the 2019 periods. Absorica royalty revenue this quarter was $1.8 million, consistent with the royalties in Q2 2020, but down 24% from Q3 of last year. Overall, this transaction has served us well, and looking forward, we still expect our economic benefit from Absorica to terminate at the end of 2020 as planned. 
As Gilbert mentioned, on September 30, 2020, we acquired a diversified portfolio of royalty interests on the global sales of four different products. While the acquired interests include entitlement to the royalties for the third quarter, estimated at $2 million, these royalties have not been included in HLS revenues for the quarter and instead are recorded as acquired receivables as of September 30th, the day when the acquisition closed. We look forward to collecting these first royalties in the next four weeks or so. Going forward, royalties for future quarters will be, re be reflected as revenues and included in adjusted EBITDA in their respective quarters. We believe the transaction has great potential to drive steady and reliable cash flows for the business. We expect that the portfolio will generate adjusted EBITDA averaging just under $11 million annually over the next 10 years, which suggests an implied acquisition multiple of five and a half times adjusted EBITDA, including payment of all of the regulatory and commercial contingent milestones in due course. Regarding terms of the transaction, we paid $30.8 million upfront and incurred $900,000 of transaction costs. We also have contingent commitments of up to $10 million in regulatory and $18.5 million in commercial milestones over the life of these assets. At this point, both the timing and achievability of these milestone payments is not known. To pay for the transaction, we used $20 million of additional term borrowing under our credit agreement and cash on hand to fund the $10.8 million balance of the upfront purchase price as well as the transaction costs. In addition, we secured a $10 million increase to our revolver facility to backstop the contingent regulatory milestone payment that could be payable within the next two years. All in all, we believe this is a very timely and financially beneficial transaction for the business. Shifting now to our expenses in a quarter, the cost of product sales increased in Q3 2020 as a result of additional costs related to expanding the Clausural product lineup and the introduction of BASIPA in Canada, including sales royalties. Within other operating expenses, the largest increase is year-over-year year for selling and marketing and medical and regulatory and patient support are related to the investment in the launch of BASIPA, including the addition of 30 customer-facing roles earlier this year. DNA in Q3 2020 was higher due primarily to a one-time $1.3 million charge related to the retirement of our founding CEO. As expected, adjusted EBITDA for Q3 and the year-to-date period is lower and primarily reflects the investment in the BASIPA launch, lower royalty revenue from Absorica, the one-time CEO retirement costs, and lower product sales for Clausural in the U.S., offset in part by Clausural growth in Canada and the initial sales of BASIPA. Adjusted EBITDA of $4.5 million in Q3 does not include the entitlement to the Q3 royalties from the new royalty portfolio. Had those royalties been included as revenues in this past quarter, pro forma adjusted EBITDA in Q3 would have been $6.5 million. Cash generated from operations was $2.4 million in Q3 2020 compared to cash generated from operations of $6.8 million in Q3 last year. The changes year-over-year year for the quarter and the year-to-date periods primarily reflect the investment in the VASIPA launch, including the purchase of inventory. As at September 30, 2020, the company had cash and cash equivalents of $20.9 million compared to $47.1 million at December 31, 2019. Factors impacting the change in cash balance since the end of last year include a $3.75 million milestone payment made to Ameren when Vesipa received data protection in Canada, 
increased selling and marketing costs related to Vasipa's launch, initial inventory purchases to support the Vasipa launch, and the purchase of the royalty portfolio announced on September 30th this year. Overall, we continue to have a very strong financial position with $20.9 million of cash, a $35 million revolving facility that remains undrawn as of today, and under the terms of our existing credit agreement, we are also able to request incremental loans up to a maximum amount of $70 million to support acquisitions and other growth opportunities. In addition, earlier this year, we filed a preliminary short-form base shelf prospectus to raise up to Canadian $250 million over a period of 25 months should the appropriate strategic opportunities emerge. Regarding the normal course issuer bid announced today, purchases can be begin on November 9th and we are permitted to acquire up to 5% of our issued and outstanding common shares over the ensuing 12-month period. This equates to just under 1.6 million shares. And finally, the next quarterly dividend will be paid on December 15th to shareholders of record on October 30th, and yesterday the Board of Directors declared that the subsequent quarterly dividend of Canadian $0.05 per outstanding common share is to be paid on March 15th, 2021, to shareholders of record as of January 29th, 2021. With that, I'll pass it back to Gilbert for his closing comments. Thank you, Tim. Uh, and in the closing, this is a very exciting time for our business. We, we can't control external events such as a pandemic, but we have gained confidence in our ability to deal with it and stay relevant to our patients and their physicians. I believe we have built a strong foundation at HLS with respect to our people, therapeutic areas, technologies, North American reach. By any measure, we're all well positioned to convert on the opportunity ahead of us. Our top priority right now and into the near future are the continuation of the successful launch of VASIPA and the steady deployment of CSAN Pronto in the mental health community to bring such novel and effective treatments and technologies to Canadians is truly an honorable experience. And of course, through a successful execution, we have the potential to deliver substantial growth in value for our shareholders. That concludes my prepared remarks. At this point, I will ask the operator to please provide instructions for asking questions. Operator? Thank you. Ladies and gentlemen, if you do have a question, please press star followed by one on your touchtone phone. You will hear a three-tone prompt acknowledging your request. And should you wish to withdraw your question, simply press star followed by two. And if you are using your speakerphone, we ask that you please lift the handset before pressing any keys. Please go ahead and press star one now if you have a question. And your first question will be from Noel Atkinson at Claris Securities. Please go ahead. Good morning, Gilbert and Tim. Uh, well done in Q3, and uh, thanks very much for taking our questions this morning. Uh, just had a few questions, just largely related to Vasipa. Um, so, thank you very much for providing the sort of that got, uh, outlook in terms of how how Vasipa patient activity looks like it might ramp. Um, what are you expecting in within those estimates for Q4, Q1 kind of time frame? In terms of what's going to happen with COVID and related lockdowns again and that sort of thing, like Amarin was talking about headwinds in the U.S. market this morning. So uh, what, are you, what are you guys assuming in that forecast? 
Uh, actually, we, uh, you know, we, we painted a picture, and I, I referred to what I call the hurricane cone, kind of defining here uh, boundaries of, of what could happen next, uh, recognizing that uh, we, don't, we don't control the pandemic. We don't control if uh, the province of Quebec or, or the city of Toronto or any other place for that matter uh, may make decisions that trigger uh, a second phase of a lockdown. Uh, what, what we know for sure is that we found ways to mitigate uh, those circumstances should they arise. We found ways to continue to make some progress, get some tractions, generate, uh, uh, you know, prescriptions uh, on the patient profile that, that really can benefit from VSIPA. So uh, we want to be extremely cautious. This is not uh, guidance. This is not a forecast. This is, uh, uh, I, as I said, painting a picture of the things that could come forward that are consistent with the recent past, uh, but being always grounded in the reality of what's happening and what we do control and what we don't control. So uh, I, I think that, uh, you, you know, uh, if you referred to headwinds that Amron uh, commented on this morning, we're, we're all in the same situation, and there's a bit of a fatigue about the pandemic and the COVID, and some people tend to forget that it's still there, the effect is still real, and uh, to use a, an analogy, uh, you know, we're, we're essentially uh, rowing upstream, right? So there's current. The strength of the current varies over time, but we're moving upwards. We're moving upstream uh, in spite of that, and that's the key message. Uh, the product thesis is hitting home. Doctors that are exposed and uh, with whom we engage and uh, give them the chance to fully appreciate the performance of the product, the benefit of the product, and so on, it does trigger usage, and that usage soon enough will be more and more generalized to uh, the, the patients fitting the profile in their population. So I think that's, uh, that's what we want to, to try to, uh, to disseminate in terms of where we are at that early stage. Uh, it's undeniable that we're getting some traction. Um, the rest, uh, I, I think, it's promising, but uh, we always have to bear in mind the caveat that uh, we don't control every facet of that in, that environment. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, it looks like you've had some good uptake in terms of getting on the formularies, particularly in Quebec and Ontario. Um, is the CEPA on the you know broad formulary at any of the large national carriers in Canada yet? Yes, we uh, we've commented on the percentages. We purposely uh, have not commented on the uh, what I would call the uh, on a nominative basis on those plans. These are uh, now at the stage of negotiation that uh, I, we think it would be counterproductive to do so. Uh, but uh, as you can appreciate, you know, at 50 and 60 percent, depending on the regions here, we've been making some some uh, serious headway. Uh, there's always a phase where do, these things slow down because uh, those negotiations can be a little protracted. <clears throat> they do have a, a financial component, uh, and they are regulated by a report of force that is, you know, the need for the product, the demand for the product, and the pressure. Uh, that that insurers may may feel and the necessity of listing the product uh, uh, versus you know what what may be the impact on their drug budget. So uh, 
classical case of a market access negotiation. It has different phases. Some plans will be speedy in uh, bringing the product on their plan. Others uh, will be more deliberate, uh, but we will continue to report uh, every time that we make significant progress uh, and, and certainly uh, uh, on, on a quarterly basis. But if it was warranted to, if we were to get to, uh, you know, a, uh, a very significant milestone at some point in time between the quarters, we, we certainly announce that as well. Um, so it looks like, if back of the envelope, it looks like you had a few hundred thousand dollars of Recipa recognized revenue in Q3. Um, if, if the patient uptake, based on what you're sort of showing here, the, the, the hurricane cone suggests that you're going to you're seeing some nice ramp in, in Q4. Uh, does that translate into accelerating the SEPA revenues that you can recognize in Q4, or do you still see? a fair amount of inventory at the distrib distributor level? Yes. Uh, I, I think it should. The, a the answer to both is, is, is yes, uh, in the sense that, uh, you know, we uh, are of the view that overly focusing on net sales at this early stage uh, is really not focusing on the right marker because as in any launch, any launch, uh, products are often heavily uh, the, the access to the product is often severely subsidized while we work on growing the reimbursement, right? So we want scripts written to be filled. We want these patients to benefit from the therapy as we work on the other part, which is eventually will make up and will eliminate the need for us to, to, to subsidize. So every time we subsidize a prescription through a, uh, uh, a very generous uh, copay assistance program, we reduce net sales, and therefore the net sales are not really meaningful in terms of uptake. That's why we communicate on patients. That's why we will increasingly communicate on scripts. This is where your eyes should go, and this extrapolation and in in patient progression should in the future and at, at, at the right point in time should be valued at that guided number of about $200 per month per script once we get to that steady state. So uh, that, that's why we've always been a bit ambivalent uh, and we do not communicate on uh, product level revenues. Uh, in that case, you can back calculate it as you did but uh, uh, bear in mind that it, it truly here, the name of the game at this stage is building uh, prescriber recognition support uh, and through that awareness uh, usage and, and then to penetrate in those practices and see the patient profile be broadly uh, identified and, uh, and put on treatment. Okay, great. Uh, just the last question. Do you have any year-end price changes Plan for Clozarel or announced for Clozarel in the U.S. or Canada? Uh, as, as you know, Canada is a Canada price uh, price control country. Uh, we we would typically not talk about price, but I would say very very unlikely. Um, you know, uh, we have a compliant price point. We're in the very early stages of our launch. Um, I don't think we'll do anything to, to rock the boat or create any kind of controversy on, on that point. I don't think it's warranted. We want the product to be affordable. 
we're negotiating with payer on the base of this introductory price, so um, um, very unlikely. Okay, great. Thanks, guys. Much appreciated. Our pleasure. Thank you, Noel. Thank you. Next question will be from David Martin at Bloomberton. Please go ahead. Uh, good morning, Gilbert and Tim. Uh, first question. Um, with HLS achieving 50% of lives covered by private drug plans and private drug plans themselves accounting for about 50% of all lives covered, are you seeing about 25% of the scripts written for Vasipa are being reimbursed, or are you able to focus your efforts more on patients who have coverage? Good morning, uh, David. Thank you for your question. Uh, what we monitor, because we don't always have that granular detail that uh, uh, you're alluding to here, is how that copay assistance is uh, evolving over time. In other words, when you launch a product, if you're willing to, to help with every script written, um, you should see very little reimbursement and therefore uh, a high level of assistance. And then as they start to upper and as those scripts are, are, are adjudicated um, and there's more and more coverage, then the average support goes down. So that's what we're monitoring. Um, maybe Tim can, can comment on what uh, he's been seeing. I mean, uh, not the numbers specifically, but uh, the evolution since the launch. Tim, do you, do you want to share a view to that? Um. Yeah, I, I, again, for, for to see trends like this, this is still very, very early days, and the, the numbers are still relatively small. But we are seeing an, an increase in the percentage that is being re reimbursed. And, um, you know, proportionally, there is, there is a very, there's a larger amount of private coverage within the total that we're seeing. Yes. So are, are you able to direct your efforts to those patients who have coverage, or is that not part of your strategy? No. The, actually, uh, what we are doing and what is, I guess, reasonable, we, we can't expect doctors to, to, to act as a triage uh, beyond uh, the clear message that we're giving to them that they should uh, consider, at least at this stage here, any patient that is under a private plan, right? So uh, that, that's essentially the one consideration. If a patient is under a, a private plan uh, and they write a, a prescription, we commit and we provide beforehand the information that will allow this patient to access the product at a no more than X uh, dollar cost, which means that you know we we will essentially foot the bill for the difference uh, and assist with with their copay. Uh, we do so in proper and compliant fashion. Uh, what happens beyond that point is actually out of our hands because you know scripts patients go to pharmacy with their scripts. The script is adjudicated, um, and uh, there's uh, uh, there's a number that comes out of that, and part of that number is for the patients. Uh, as his copay, and part of that number is for us as a support effort. Uh, we we don't know in fine uh, which which plan and in which fashion uh, is this coming from. Okay. Um, next question: the 350 or so prescribers. Um, what what percent of your total target uh, prescriber population does that represent? 
uh, all of the total prescriber population, uh, the potential prescriber population is extremely large, but uh, we, we'd be talking, you know, between 10 and 20,000 doctors. Uh, but that number needs to be viewed in terms of our initial targeted physician population, which is closer to 2,000 to 2,500. Okay. Um, and a similar question for the CSAM Pronto. You mentioned it's in eight centers or 12 centers. What, what percent of the total centers that you'd like to see it in does that represent? Uh, this is a, a truly a fraction here, I, I would say, in, in, in the low, uh, low double digit. Um, you know, providing a more precise answer is very hard because uh, you know, we originally were in discussion with the nine largest institutions in the country, and that discussion remains, is that, that some, some of those sectors uh, decided to defer uh, an implementation at the time where they were too busy dealing with, uh, with the pandemic and the aftermath of the pandemic. So uh, we have deployed in centers that either uh, came back to us and just say the time is right for us and we want to do it, or we're receptive. Uh, that boils down to 12 locations out of uh, under the jurisdiction of eight uh, entities. Uh, you know, some of them are large and uh, they are multi-pronged and they have satellite centers. So uh, that's a reflection of that. Uh, and, uh, you know, that, that number, while lower than where we would be in normal circumstances as per our plan, that number should continue to grow. We could, uh, you know, almost double that count before the end of the year. Okay. Um... Hey, Tim, should we expect your operating expenses to be fairly stable going forward, or is there is there going to be a step up in uh, the Salesforce expense as Trinomia and Perseris get approved? Um, so in, in the near term, uh, I would expect that the expenses would be quite stable. Uh, I think um, we did talk about expanding our coverage for Vesipa. Uh, into uh, a, a general practitioner or primary care market. I think when, when that expansion happens, you'd, you'd, you'd see uh, a step up in uh, operating expenses associated with that. Um, I think in the, when it comes to, um, you know, Perseris or, or Trinomia, um, there's a very nice, um, uh, they're a very nice complement to the existing uh, operations. So there, there would be some addition, but I don't think it would be um, um, as significant as, for instance, when we uh, expanded to launch Vasipa. In the expansion into primary care, when, when will that happen? And I think you said you might use a third party for that? Yes. Uh, well, here's our, our thinking, you know. Uh, we, we can't be static in our thinking when, when the environment is so fluid and challenging. And uh, we're allowing ourselves to um, to think in terms of uh, al possible alternatives, right? The, the the base case is that we would would deploy 50 to 55 GP-oriented sales representative, and that this would take place when the public reimbursement uh, are taking effect. So this typically 18, 24 month post-launch uh, or earlier, if we gain public market access earlier. Uh, 
the alternative uh, that we're allowing ourselves to to reintegrate into the, the spectrum of possibilities would be to see if if in the context of this pandemic does it make more sense to look at an existing market participant that is already calling on a similar audience that may have cardiovascular credentials and to essentially have one of their detailing positions be allocated to VSIPA, or should we take the chance and the risk of uh, trying to structure a sales force, interview people, train them, deploy them, when in fact there are a lot of impediments for an activity that is otherwise fairly straightforward. So uh, we're looking at the effect, the pros, the cons, the benefit. Uh, could this accelerate our plans rather than than, than stick to the original? Um, they're all the things that uh, uh, we're allowing ourselves to look into. And the reason we specified it is that we previously had mentioned that uh, we had boiled it down to uh, a known sales force. Uh, we're now in the context of pandemic, we're seeing the merits that could be related to um, a co-detailing partnership of sort. I'm not saying co-promotion, I'm, co I'm saying co-detailing. And would it be a pharma company or a contract sales organization? Uh, it, it could be uh, one or the other. Um, I, I think, you know, we want a very qualitative uh partners, so we will uh, make those evaluations um, so that we do get a qualitative partner. VSIPA is a uh, sophisticated uh, story, it, one that, that needs to be well presented, well understood. So that, that's a key parameter. Uh, we'll see who, you know, how we qualify the various uh, possible partners. And uh, as I said before, we, we, we also keep the, uh, the initial assumption uh, alive as, uh, as a base case. Okay, thanks. I'll get back in queue. Thank you. Next question will be from Justin Keywood at Stifle GMP. Please go ahead. Good morning, and thank you for taking my call. I just had some uh, questions around uh, the EBITDA. Um, so within the quarter... Did the adjusted EBITDA, did that add back the uh, 1.3 million uh, U.S. retirement charge? Hi, Justin. Um, thanks for the question. Um, and um, no, that does not. So that, that's, that's included in there. So if, if I were to do my own adjusted EBITDA, and this is pretty rough math, with the 4.5 plus the 1.3, so, you know, the quarter could have been at around, you know, 5.8 million given it was a one-time charge? Uh, yeah, excluding the one-time, that's 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 where the quarter would have been, yeah. yeah. Okay, and then uh, I also... And, uh, sorry to interfere, but that also excludes uh, the uh, the royalty interest, which is tempted to the level of $2 million. Uh, so, you know, technically, if you want to really bracket the whole, the whole thing, it could be also as high as 7.8. Right, um, and that's actually my next question of clarification. That, and, and just to understand that pro forma EBITDA number, would that include any of the Absorca remaining royalty, or, or is that additional two million? Is that kind of like a net new royalty number uh, going forward? The, the two million is tied to the uh, recently acquired royalty interest. Yeah. 
um, the Absorica royalty is already included in the adjusted EBITDA. Okay, and um, just so I understand that royalty from Absorica, I think uh, we're anticipating a very small amount for Q4, and then the economics of that asset, uh, we shouldn't expect anything going into 2021. I think both of those assumptions are very reasonable given where it's at um, with expected loss of exclusivity um, in Q4. I think assuming less and then done at the end of the year would make sense. Okay. Thank you. That's helpful. And then just on the cash flow, uh, the conversion of EBITDA was a little lower than at least what we were expecting. And I think some of this has to do with the $1.3 million uh, retirement charge. but. Uh, there was also mention of an inventory build for Vesipa. I, that's how I understood it, is that the inventory uh, was already purchased in the front half of the year, or was there continued purchases in the quarter? Uh, no continued purchases in the quarter. You're right, that was done in in the front half of the year. Um, there, from a cash flow standpoint, um, the last piece of that was actually paid in Q3. So. <laughs> Delivered in Q2, paid in Q3. Okay, understood. And I, will there be any other anticipated inventory uh, purchases in the near term? Because I, I think I understand there's there's a pretty healthy amount of inventory on uh, already. That, that that's true. We're in very good shape. I I, I would think it'd be a little while. Okay, and, and then my last question is just the timing around the uh, Health Canada potential approval for a trinomio and Perseris, um, I, I'm not sure. Is that expected in Q4 or Q1 of next year? Hello? Oh, um, I, <laughs> I was expecting Silver to answer that. I, I think he's having some technical difficulties. So um, uh, the, the um, Health Canada uh, action date, if you will, for Perseris is that is actually coming up. So I would expect we would hear something uh, uh, this quarter. Okay, and uh, Trinomia. Um, that's just a little bit behind that, likely also this quarter. Okay, I appreciate that. Thank you very much. Thank you. And your next question will be from Chelsea Stelic at AI Securities. Please go ahead. Hi, good morning, gentlemen. Um, so I know I just have one question. I, I know that you mentioned that some health, uh, mental health facilities are opening up again, especially after some closures, which has lent itself to you know the continued strong performance of Clozaro and new treatment initiation. I don't know if you can, but could you give us like an outlook on whether or not you see these facilities in Canada and the U.S. continue to remain open as the second wave is among us, or how you foresee that will you know impact your fourth quarter? That I, um, Hello. Sorry, Tim. I just just want to notify you that I'm I'm back on the call. Unfortunate uh, transmission problem. Great. Um, that was that was fast. Um, did you catch uh, Chelsea's question? Unfortunately, just uh, the last few words. Okay. Um, I, I I think it was it was basically looking at what what we would what we would see as the continued. Um, uh, COVID-19 impact on on mental health institutions' ability to, uh, um, you know, entertain prescribing for new patients on Clausural or CSAN Pronto implementations. And I, I think what we're what we're finding is that the the market 
and and you know the healthcare system is beginning to uh, normalize and find ways to um, get back to treating other patients even while the pandemic continues. And so that that seems to be the emerging new normal. We we obviously don't control or know how things will play out, and so things could change. And, and likely change in different regions and different cities and localities at different times. But I think the, the emerging pattern is that um, institutions and, and the healthcare system is finding a way to, to treat everyone as needed. Correct. Okay, I, and I think, if I may just add briefly there, there's been a number of uh, industry observers uh, like IGVIAs of the world that have been uh, commenting on uh, What's, what's been happening in those chronic disease states? Where are those patients going if they're parked or, and so on? So uh, the short of it is that uh, there, there was, a, I guess, is a notion of an inventory of patients that got built somewhere and is now uh, being addressed progressively. So there, there was a, a kind of a standstill period and with, um, I guess, healthcare organizations learning to cope with the virus were coming back slowly towards uh, normality, and, and uh, now we're seeing um, the number of those patients being initiated on treatment, whereas before uh, it was more of a status quo. Okay, and so in terms of like what you would see pre-pandemic new treatment initiations versus, you know, during pandemic new treatment um, initiations, and then now pent up demand new treatment initiations, what, what does that all look like? In terms of numbers, yeah. I guess. Uh, the, I guess the one data point I, I could give you, it's imperfect, but uh, we're now getting to uh, patient initiation numbers that are neighboring the, uh, the, the few months preceding the pandemic. So uh, we're not in catch-up mode because it would be above that level, but at least we're getting to a similar rhythm um, which is, you know, you know, we 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 essentially uh, plummeted to essentially no zero new patients over most of the spring and the beginning of, of of the summer. So now there's been a progressive resumption, and uh, we're we're getting getting to close to pre-pandemic levels. Perfect. That's helpful. Thank you so much. You're welcome. Thank Chelsea. you. As a reminder, ladies and gentlemen, if you do have any questions please press star followed by one. And your next question is from David Martin at Bloomberton. Hi, a couple other questions if I can. Um, if Trinomia Procerus are approved this quarter, will you launch them right away? I, I think uh, you have to view these, uh, these products, including Saladax, as uh, products that could be introduced uh, during the first half. Uh, you know, we're uh, we're in an environment here where uh, we have to just you know, here to talk again about the pandemic. Be mindful that uh, this is a not uh, normal normal operating conditions, and to get ahead of ourselves uh, before we have all the facts and and can launch in efficient fashion can only drive costs up prematurely, and therefore that's, in our view, one of the definitions of, of, of a risk. So uh, if, if we were to receive a favorable 
notification from Health Canada on uh, Saladax, for example, well, we will, pro you know, in orderly fashion, we will plan a launch uh, that should take place in the first half of the year, but uh, we, we have to be mindful that we have to make sure we have proper product supply and that the, uh, the apparatus, you know, the commercial apparatus can, can be prepared, uh, trained, and uh, that all the tools can be ready for that. So every, everything is uh, being done at a somewhat lower pace and with less predictability, and therefore, you know, uh, basic prudence is the modus operandi. Okay, uh, next question. The RSAP program in the States, um, you've talked about CSAM Pronto and things are getting going on that. What about the status in the States of the equivalent program? Okay, well, the, thank you. Uh, the uh, RSAP program is, uh, is actually uh, still in effect. We moved post-pilot in uh, towards the middle of last year, and we're now trying to expand it. Uh, the impact uh, on the RSAP program has actually been greater than the impact on the uh, uh, CSAN Pronto deployment. Uh, one of the reasons is that you know, our pod was essentially rooted in California, which is a very large state, but uh, uh, was all, a state that was also very heavily impacted by by the pandemic, and therefore uh, we've seen there are some of the gains that we had made that were very encouraging, uh, being being reduced somewhat, attenuated, and in some cases uh, reversed. So uh, at that scale, it's not highly significant, but it's uh, nonetheless a bit disappointing. Uh, we think here again, once the conditions are, are established and once we can branch out of the state of California for those subsequent deployments, we'll see the benefit we saw in the pilot phase resume and continue to help us mitigate the normal erosion of that product in the U.S. And are you seeing that start to happen or are things still fully locked down there? At, at this point, we're not seeing that happening in any uh, meaningful way. Okay. I mean, you, you, you can appreciate in the U.S., the, uh, uh, the spike uh, has been much greater and has been impacting disproportionately, you know, probably uh, 48 of the 51 states. Okay. Um, my last question is just a clarification. Um, when I asked about whether you're able to target specific patients, you said no, but I, I think you also said that if they have private insurance coverage, um, e even if the reimbursement isn't in place yet, you you'll give them patient assistance. Does that mean you, you are focusing your efforts away from the patients that are covered with uh, public drug plans? That would be a fair uh, conclusion. We're not uh, uh, ignoring them. We're just telling doctors that public plans are slower to move. And uh, if they can impress upon their provincial authorities that Vesipa is a needed medication in the provincial formulary, that will help a lot. Uh, but that in the meanwhile, they... Uh, uh, they focus more um, in the initial phases on patients that have access to private coverage. Got it. Okay, thank you. That's it.
Thank you. And your next question will be from Tanya Gonzalez at Canaccord Genuity. Please go ahead. Good morning, gentlemen. Uh, just a couple more from me here. So you talked a little bit about the copay assistance you provide in the drug's early days. Could you give us an idea of just how big that gross to net discount could be in the first few months? Sorry, you meant the copay assistance? Yeah, so uh, like how much of a discount can you provide? Does it does it cover up to 90% of a drug's cost? I'm just wondering what that differential is in the early days. Uh, I, I think the, the rule uh, relates to a, uh, I think you can picture a pay no more than uh, X dollars. That That's pretty much the base of the equation. Uh, for the rest, it depends on every insurance um, plans. In other words, uh, some of them at the early stage may already cover, uh, you know, up to that level and therefore there, there's no need for assistance. In some other cases, if the insurance company has not uh, rendered a verdict on the on the reimbursement, then we we would essentially take care of the rest of it. Uh, Tim, do you, do you want or do you have anything else uh, in addition that you want to share here to Give a sense of uh, you know the boundaries of what we could be supporting. Um, sure, thanks, Gilbert, and, and, and thanks, Tanya. I, I I think Gilbert, the way the way Gilbert captured it is right. It basically, the the idea wouldn't be to to pick up all of the cost. What we're doing is we're bringing the cost down to what would be you know kind of a, a more manageable copay amount for the patient, and so that that would depend on a number of other factors. Um, but it is obviously healthier than what we would expect it would be going forward. Yeah, and I think you know these these you know we don't want to do any anything that would be good as a charade here, right? The the uh, the information is in the public domain. We're we're providing physicians with uh, the information that will help the patient get access to that support. And I think, and correct me if I'm wrong, Tim, it's pay no more than, what is the amount? It, I, I, I believe it's somewhere around $40 a month, something like that. Okay. So as, as, as you can imagine, in the, in the worst case, uh, we, we could be essentially covering the difference. Uh, but what really matters to us here in the end is kind of the blend of all those demands, some of which are fully covered, some of which are partially covered, some of which are not covered at all. Uh, but th these are the three elements in the equation. Um, I think anything more specific would would uh, would be hard to um, to present. We're we're looking at it in an aggregate fashion. No, that's perfect. That was that was really really good color. Um, and thank you again for the for the chart that you showed us in the slide deck. I think that was really helpful. I think you previously estimated that the pandemic has pushed the sales curve out about two and a half to three months. Is this still the case, looking at these script volumes? I think that the uh, uh, you know this notion of shifting the curve was uh, because we got in a bit of a holding pattern, right? And I I think we've alluded. Use terms such as uh, you know retooling, uh, finding new approaches, adapting the tools to the new reality, and in that period of time, uh, we had very little interactions or productive interactions with doctors. So that was essentially the passage of time with us not 
uh, uh, stimulating or, or acting on the market. Uh, we evaluated, yeah, approximately two and a half months, two to two and a half months uh, uh, of, of an idling of sort. Uh, since then, I think, uh, as, as some of those numbers could, could attest to, uh, we knew it with the doctors. We're getting some, some traction. We're seeing the results happen here. Uh, and, and, and it's more in terms of uh, uh, what is the, the buffering effect of the pandemic, because uh, as happy as we are with the types of actions and uh, the mitigation strategy, the effect of mitigation strategy, it is still not equivalent to what we would do otherwise in the normal environment with uh, you know, 30 client-facing uh, personnel interacting face-to-face -face, uh, X times per day, every day of every week, right? So uh, the question is, would be, what was the buffering effect? I don't know. Uh, it is there. It's very real. We would be posting better, stronger numbers, uh, but uh, we're, we're quite pleased with the, uh, the performance and our ability to mitigate a lot of the, uh, you know, the, the 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 slowdown that's being induced by harsher conditions in the field. Okay, excellent. Um, switching gears here, do you have any update on the search for a new COO? Uh, the the search is uh, yes, we're we're smack in the middle of it. We're we're it's following its course, and uh, we're we're hopeful that you know comes the uh, the beginning of next year that that this could come to a conclusion uh but uh, progressing normally okay and one more for me here um the sales and marketing expense looks to have downticked from levels in q1 and q2 could you maybe talk to why that is i would have expected it just continues to ramp um or at least stay steady with your your number of salespeople staying steady and maybe just provide us an update. I know you have over 30 people committed to Visipa. Could you give me an exact number? Sure, I'll answer the, the, the second question and Tim can, uh, can comment on, uh, on the phone. Uh, so we have uh, constituted 23 sales territory across the country. Uh, we have, uh, I think, uh, six medical and scientific liaisons we also have key account managers and of course the supervision on the field of uh, uh of the personnel so um, that that's kind of the the rough equation here we say 30 it it, it could be a bit more but uh, uh i think it gives a good sense of what the footprint is tim you want to comment on the front end certainly um I, I think in, in general we, we should see r relatively stable expenses in that area now. Um, even even in the COVID-19 era, uh, summer is slower, um, and so Q3 we had a little less activity in it. And of course the, the earlier quarters this year also had a lot of the additional costs for you know, getting the actually launching the product, getting all of the tools and, and training in place, and then, then you know, as we went into Q2, we had a little bit of retooling to do to move to a more um, virtual or electronic environment, and then and then um, some lighter activity months during the summer. But I think you you can probably normalize for all of that, and um, 
see a pretty steady amount going forward. Perfect, that makes sense. That's all for me. Thank you so much, gentlemen. You're welcome, Tanya. Thank you. And at this time, we have no further questions registered, so I would like to turn the call back over to Mr. Godai. Thank you, Operator, and thank you for being with us. Thank you all for participating in today's call. We hope that uh, you and your loved ones stay healthy and safe, and we look forward to speaking with you and reporting to you in the coming quarters. Thank you. Have a wonderful day. Thank you, sir. Ladies and gentlemen, this does indeed conclude your conference call for today. Once again, thank you for attending, and at this time we do ask that you please disconnect your line. Thank you for listening to TSX Quarterly. If you enjoyed the cast, remember to leave a good rating. And remember, for any additional inquiries, please consult the company's investor relations section on their website. See you next time. special about Hero Bread's soft, fluffy, and delicious breads, buns, and tortillas? These ultra-low net-carb baked goods contain zero sugar, fewer calories, and more protein than the leading brands and are high in fiber to support gut health. Shop now at Hero.co.